Hi, everybody. I am so excited today to introduce Carrie Hall. She is our guest speaker from Sensory Pathways for Kids. Um, she has been doing this work for over 30 years. Um, and I don't know if that's specific to sensory work or if that's occupational therapy. I don't know how new like the, the recognition of the field of all this sensory stuff is. Um, but I'm sure you it's can clarify. Actually, my practice is 35 years old. So I've been doing the sensory work for 30, or the practice for 35 years. I did three years of sensory work with a um, hearing population, um, with preschoolers with hearing delays. Um, so some of them completely deaf and some of them just lacking some hearing. Um, and then I kind of just fell into this practice and kind of melded my way through it. Uh, so yeah, that, so it's been around quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm going to let you kind of take it away. If you would like to do a further introduction of, um, your company and the group that you work with, that would be fabulous. Um, I figure you understand them better than I do. And yeah, I, I can't wait to hear what kind you say. Kind of a conglomeration of people that's a little bit confusing. So Sensory Pathways for Kids is occupational and physical therapy for children with sensory processing delays, but also with gross motor and fine motor concerns. So that's kind of our expertise. We have an office in the Denver Tech Center office in the Denver Tech Center, and we have one up on I-70 in Kipling. Um, in my Denver Tech Center office, however, I share space with a partner who is a speech and language and reading specialist. So she treats kids that have both of those concerns. We also share space with a, a neuropsychologist, a developmental neuropsychologist who does a really great job about kind of putting all the puzzle pieces together. She's a great um, interpreter of data. She fills in the data where it needs to be filled in. Um, she helps with schools and things that kids will need more of in classrooms and things. So she kind of does all the nitty gritty work for us, kind of giving parents a better umbrella of things that if they need that. Um, so that's kind of the practice. Like I said, we've been doing this for 35 years or I've been doing this for 35 years. Um, and I think to just pat myself on the back, I think we're good at it. I think this has been our expertise. The person that gave me this practice gave me some really good advice 35 years ago and said, figure out what you want to do and do it well. And we really concentrate on the kids with sensory processing disorders. And of course they come with sometimes those more gross motor and fine motor concerns. So we also will treat that if it, you know, if it accompanies the child, of course, with their strengths and weaknesses. Okay. How many of you have any idea what a sensory processing disorder is? Oh, yay. Okay. So I'm going to give you a summary. This is certainly not what I would do for like a big teacher group, but I think um, Holly gave me a really great list of questions and I really want to make sure I have time to get those, to those for you. Um, but I can't do that without giving everybody some background about a, what a sensory processing disorder is. How does it affect kids and adults? Um, what kind of things do you look for or when do we decide that treatment could be necessary? So I think to understand that sensory processing is a normal neurological function that starts in the time the baby's in utero. 
um, and starts continuing its development as the child gets older. But most families that I talk to can tell me that this child had some concerns when they were young as far as emotional dysregulation, big sleep problems, and probably big feeding problems tend to be the top three when they're really little. Um, so how I describe that to parents on the phone, and I probably did this, Holly, when we talked on the phone, is if you think about our nervous system as a cup, a typical nervous system functions with that cup kind of zero to 25% full throughout the day. Meaning that if you went to an avalanche game last week or you went to the library this morning, your body would still stay with that cup pretty not full. So what that means is your body knows what's important. It knows what's necessary to keep you safe and everything else gets filtered out. So you can follow the puck on the ice and still filter out 35,000 people around you for the most part. You know that they're not going to be um, any concern of yours or anything that, that could cause you harm. Um, but the problem with kids and adults with a sensory processing disorder is that their cup runs 75 to 100% full throughout the day. So their body thinks that the tapping on the on the table, the clock ticking, the tag in their shirt, the blender running in the background. Those things are significantly important and might cause them harm. And so that cup continues to fill up, fill up, fill up. And the more full that cup gets, the more it interferes with our ability to function well. And that word function is a very general term on purpose because some of the children we treat have significant gross motor or fine motor problems, but certainly not all of them. Some of the kids are, have tactile sensitivities to their clothing, but not all of them. I think the three still main ones we hear, the one probably that gets me the primary phone call is some kind of emotional dysregulation that's causing the family or the child big distress. Um, sleep patterns and eating patterns, of course, are high stress in families. If the child's not sleeping well, the child's not eating enough nutrition or enough quantity. Those tend to be the big three. And then I start listening for other red flags, tactile sensitivities, auditory sensitivities, um, tactile seeking, you know, seeking. I mean, we've had kids that, you know, at very, way too old of age are still chewing on rocks or you know, their clothing, or we had a little girl that loved to, she put anything in her mouth, glass. It was quite bizarre. Oh, why am I clicking? Um, stop. Um, so the, that kind of in a nutshell tells you there's two sides of sensory processing disorders. There's the kids and the adults that are very sensitive to things. And there's kids that are more seekers of things, seekers of movement, seekers of touch speakers of loud noise, but you will also mostly have kids that do both sides of that coin. So some kids are seekers of movement, but highly sensitive to touch. So you don't stay on one side of that coin only. Why is that clicking? Stop it. Um, you can have a combination of seeker and avoider and still be considered Am I blinking to you guys? My picture? Yeah. Yeah, it does blink. Yeah. 
I don't know what it's, why it's doing that. Hopefully it'll stop. Okay. All right. So does that make sense as far as giving you kind of a background of a sensory processing disorder? Yes. So those of you that know something about it, does it fit with your knowledge base? Yeah. Good. Okay. Perfect. So I think that that's probably the easiest way to start that. And then let's just start a discussion. Let's start with some of these questions. Um, certainly just throw up a question when you, when you have one, or if I didn't answer the question well enough, you know, this is, this is for your guys' benefit. This is not for me just to spew knowledge at you. Um, so we kind of went over what a sensory processing disorder is. I think the thing to remember is that we all have sensory preferences. So, um, you know, music preferences, um, how we, how we socialize presence, preferences. Do we prefer small groups? Do we prefer large groups? Um, but where a disorder comes at the back end of sensory processing is it starts interfering in our ability to do our job well, whether it's play, school, work, it starts interfering. And that interference will affect the child and or the family greatly, and it becomes a chronic condition. Now that doesn't mean that condition doesn't vary. Like parents will tell me, well, last year they hated the tags in their clothes, but this year that seems to be okay. Well, that doesn't mean the sensory processing disorder went away. It just varied. We now have a whole different set of symptoms. Our nervous system is not static, it moves. So just because now this week his emotional regulation seems better, doesn't mean the sensory processing disorder went away. It means that the environment fits his needs better so he can stay calmer. So I think it's also important to understand that sensory processing disorders do not go away on their own. Um, I have families that wait years and years and years and years, and now I'm dealing with a teenage child instead of a four-year-old child. Very, very different nervous system thing. So my, somebody asked who, what would be the thing I'd want parents to know. If you have a question, get to a professional. Let them take a look at the child. Let them ask you questions. Let them go through their knowledge base and let them determine if there's a sensory processing disorder rather than you deciding, well, the tactile sensitivity seems better today. We must be fine. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, so I think when to reach out. So I'm sorry, you don't have these questions in front of you. How to know when to reach out for help versus normal development. Um, I think the chronic word is, is important. When this becomes something that you and your husband are fighting all the time on how you discipline this child, somebody's being too soft, somebody's being too firm, um, their, their sensory sensitivities or it often becomes very controlling. Um, the way they want to dress, the way they want to you to drive to your house. Um, I had a little boy that they had a big train set up in the dining room. So it had two entrances, one from the living room and one from the kitchen. And he had a complete meltdown if his mother entered the train room from the kitchen. So controlling over things that really shouldn't matter. Um, but 
affecting your life or their life greatly. And typically it's both. Typically we'll see both for that. Um, what signs or symptoms to watch for? Um, you know, it, it's, it's a huge red flag thing. So like I said earlier, sleep disturbances are big. Eating disturbances are big. Emotional dysregulation is big. Um, but then those kind of secondary signs that I, that I think are important, certainly coordination problems. So a lot of kids that we treat, there's a question in a parent's or a teacher's mind if there might be attention deficit disorder going on with this child. Well, if the child has a motor coordination problem or is really weak in the trunk, Sitting still is very hard because I don't have those muscles to keep me upright in a chair for 40 minutes while you talk to me. So a lot of times movement is used as a compensatory technique for a balance issue, um, a strength issue, a vestibular processing issue, which is in the inner ear and it processes movement and head position. So... I think oftentimes jumping to some of these, oh, I wish I had my triangle. Um, some of these diagnoses without maybe looking underlying is important. So we often show a parent, I think this will be easy for you guys to visualize, a triangle of development. And at the bottom two rows are actually the different pieces of sensory processing development. And it's at the bottom, because it truly is the base for development. It is, two of those systems are developed in utero, mostly before you know you're pregnant. So that's how early on these symptoms, or these systems start working. Um, and then on top of that, start some of those early childhood skills, some of the motor coordination, some of our awareness of body and space, um, visual motor things like how to put pieces together for early puzzles and those things with the sensory start building into higher level coordination and higher level things and at the top of that triangle is attention and academics and behavior so if we don't back up a little bit and look at the base of that triangle and we jump straight to the top a lot of times you're missing components of things that might be causing you or your child some of these some of these issues. And it's why I like working in a multidisciplinary environment that I can go to my speech and language pathologist or my neuropsychologist and go, have you ever seen this? Or would you be concerned about this? And I can get secondary opinions on things without having to call all over town. Okay, does that make sense? Um, what signs and symptoms are you guys worried about? Let's throw it back at you. Or are you pretty aware in your mind of how it fits into this puzzle of children that they always are? Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, I guess I would wonder how to separate um, other symptoms of like, well, two questions, I guess. One is, does it often correlate with birth trauma or um, maybe more uh, gentler way to say that with a difficult birth? Mm -hmm. 
we see, so the top, so through research, and actually there's finally a lot more research for a sensory processing disorder, which is really cool. What they're really finding out is the probably the primary cause is actually a familial genetic correlation. That when we go back generation to generation to generation, it was called very different things. I just got off the phone with a mom who said that her brother and her father both have bipolar diagnoses, but when she started talking to them both, sensory sensitivities were very strong in both their history. So a lot of adult psychologists or psychiatrists don't have the word sensory processing disorders in their wheelhouse at all. Um, but when you, when we can kind of go back, we can see that a lot of these kids in these families had a lot of very similar symptoms or, or concerns when they were kids. Um, but then the next ones we look at certainly are birth trauma, certainly is um, drug and alcohol exposure in utero. Um, any kind of trauma, I think, will trigger neurological issues with kids. And so then coming up with a defining line that it is this or this, um, I think what's better said is it could be both. So treating one without the other, I think sometimes we're missing a boat. Um, that, that if there are especially signs of a sensory processing disorder and you're treating it psychiatrically or medication-wise only, kind of misses some components of things that actually might level out and calm down the nervous system with less or no, none of that medication that sometimes these kids are given early on because they are so traumatically affected and emotionally dysregulated all the time. So yeah, that, and then the other one in there, of course, is the symptom of autism and that whole spectrum. I mean, autism comes with a sensory processing disorder. It's part of the diagnoses. So that's the other one really high on the list. Now that also freaks parents out to think, if you say my child has a sensory processing disorder, are you telling me that he's autistic? No, probably 75% of the kids we treat here are not on the autistic spectrum. Um, and I would say 50% of our autistic kids are probably not autistic. I think they were diagnosed by somebody that had no idea what a sensory processing disorder was. And they did one or two characteristics that in their mind meant autism. And they gave, or they were diagnosed by a school district, which isn't really legal. Um, so we get a lot of that, which... 15 years ago would have really flipped some parents out. Um, okay, I will tell you, I'll give you a little bit of that, Lee. Um, um, so, so when I was early in practice, that autistic diagnosis was something anybody would fight tooth and nail to not put on their child. Um, now it actually can be very helpful. It can get you services in in more behavioral things that, that insurance companies won't pay without it. Um, we can have in a lot of our insurance companies unlimited occupational and sensory processing disorder therapy where we can't, like I just, a little boy 
that I just looked up his insurance benefits gets 20 a year unless he has autism, which this little boy does. And so he gets unlimited visits a year. So that can be really helpful. Um, but I do think that a lot of kids with sensory processing disorder exhibit with very interesting behavioral patterns. Um, and a lot of kids are diagnosed with autism with very limited knowledge or face-to-face -face awareness of the child. They're taking a lot of report from families. And so then they're given this diagnosis, which can be, you know, I, I often ask parents, do you agree with that diagnosis? Um, and it, it's interesting to kind of watch. I've had a, three kids come in recently with preliminary diagnosis that said they will not finalize it until they've had at least a year of sensory processing therapy. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then kind of see how does the child look when we've treated something that might be a triggering cause for some of these more bizarre behaviors that he's exhibiting. So Lee, you asked the question about um, distinguishing factors. Not the best, because I'm not an expert in autism, but I am an expert in sensory processing disorders. So where I get confused or where it starts bothering me are these kids that are extremely social, um, have great awareness of their surroundings. They, you know, have great, I mean, they seek interpersonal relationships, but they do have, they might be a hand flapper. They might have sleep, they might have some speech and language delays. They might have some of these things that because they have, they're delayed with their speech and language and they're a hand flapper, somebody decided that that was enough criteria to give them an autism diagnosis. So I tell parents, I had a little boy, one of the first children I treated in practice. Well, I was probably into it about 10 years, but he came into the practice with an autism diagnosis. He was severely orally dyspraxic, meaning he had a hard time figuring out how to move his mouth. He was obviously extremely bright. He could look at things like he looked at a toilet bowl once and said octagon, and he was three and it was an octagon. I mean, you know, kind of bizarre things. And But my psychologist that worked with me at the time said, I just don't think he's autistic, Carrie. Well, I worked with this little boy from the time he was three to the time he was six. He also got speech and language therapy. He also have, had an astagmus in his eyes. He had a little twitchy in his eyes. I mean, this was a mom that did everything anybody ever wanted her to do. I mean, if you said jump three times, this mom jumped 12 times. Um, at, when he went to school, we had to tell her to stop going back through his history because he had become such a normal little five-year-old little boy with a twitchy eye. Um, because she had gone through hell and back with this little guy. Um, and he went into kindergarten. So he started with us with an IQ of 67, which if you know IQs is pretty significantly delayed. He graduated from us at five, they redid his IQ score at 135. Um, he is now married with children. He contacted me, he did his thesis on sensory processing disorders. Um, you know, this was a kid that was a pretty non-functioning three-year-old kid, didn't have a lot of words, 
that through a lot of great early intervention, I don't think his mom or himself would say that he's on the spectrum at all anymore. So it was interesting to kind of watch that and say with some really good early intervention, do these skills come in? But a lot of these kids won't get the therapy they need without that early diagnosis. So I don't get so upset about it anymore, but I do think it is something that um, is probably diagnosed more than really always fits. Lee, did I answer your question at all? Looks like for SPD. Okay, my son has been diagnosed, but I don't know what OT does. Oh, you yeah, don't know I can what say it OT out loud. <laughs> Just, I am, my son okay. has sensory processing disorder. We know he does. His sister has auditory processing disorder. My son is three okay. and his di he was diagnosed by his pediatrician, but I don't even like, what did, what is it that you do? Like, I have no idea how it's even like, what do you do? And how do you treat it? <laughs> you know, before we go down oh. this road and fight insurance and probably end spending a lot of money out of pocket. I'm just curious, you know, I'd love to know more about what it is, how you go okay, about so treating he's it. not in treatment yet. No, he's not. He was recommended oh, okay. for oh. last year, but um, we could, we okay. had some other health and medical bill priorities that came first. Of course. Do you mind me asking who your insurance carrier is? Cigna. Okay. So the first thing to be aware of is that you do your best to not mention sensory processing disorder to an insurance company unless it's Medicaid. Medicaid's the only one that will pay for a sensory processing disorder to be treated. So we work around legally on diagnosing what their other symptoms are that I know the insurance company will like a little bit better um, than a sensory. And there's no diagnosis for sensory processing disorder. There's no code. So be careful about that. I can get Cigna to pay for all my therapy, but I don't say that I'm treating a sensory processing disorder, okay? So the first thing that we do in our office is we do an evaluation that takes about an hour with the child. We're trying to find out where now, and we also send you a lot of paperwork for you and your kids' teachers if they're in school. We're trying to figure out where their strengths and weaknesses are. So do they have good gross motor skills or is that a deficit? Do they have good fine motor skills or is that a deficit? The big ones we're looking for is vestibular processing, which a lot of places won't look at. Children's Hospital doesn't look at it at all anymore. Um, which means how comfortable are they with movement? Are they movement with their head in different positions? Can they tolerate laying down as well as they can standing up? A lot of kids with a vestibular processing disorder were very early walkers because laying down was never a very comfortable position for them, okay? The reason that the vestibular system is so important is because it is one of our calming mechanisms. We use swings and rocking our babies and swaying as a comfort. If the nervous system isn't processing that as comfort, there's one of our red flags triggering emotional dysregulation. So we look very heavily at the vestibular system. The other one that we hear a lot of and will definitely look a lot at is called the proprioceptive system, which is 
your muscles working hard. So um, you carrying your laundry up a flight of stairs is proprioception. It's, it's input into your muscles and joints. It's a natural regulator. It's what we all do to help us regulate our nervous system. But some of us have a pretty regulated nervous system and we can use little bits of things like going down and seeing my office manager in her office, a little walk or a run in the morning or I get on my stationary bike in the morning. That will keep me pretty regulated. And I know I have a better day if I actually do get on my bike in the morning than the days that I think I'm too busy. But that heavy work is something that we start to see pop up a lot with your preschool kids. And it pops up with that pinching and biting and shoving and headbutting you and being too rough with peers. And it's usually because they're in a very overstimulating environment and it's not seen as super out of the ordinary because they're three and four or two through four. But I just got a mom call who now this little boy's five and he's still doing the same things and he's in big trouble at camp. So that proprioceptive input is a calmer. So we got to figure out this little boy that likes to pinch and shove and bite how to get him the input his body's looking for in a way that doesn't get him in trouble. Okay. So therapy is a really cool thing for kids with a sensory processing disorder. It's usually done in a very big gym environment with lots of swings and climbing things and jumpy and crashy things. And our job is to figure out what regulates your child that we can send you home with information and you can continue to provide that information and tell us, I did this and saw this really great result, or I did this and he fell apart. And that's our, I mean, this, it sounds, it looks simple when you're watching us play with your children, but we have to have a neurological understanding of what are we seeing and what is helping your child. And then you, of course, going home and saying, wow, this helped a lot. He slept great that day, or he ate so much better, or he was so nice to his brothers and sisters. That's the input we need to know that he's a kid that needs more vestibular input versus more proprioceptive input, or maybe a combination of both to get to that point of regulation. Okay. So therapy itself should be a lot of play, but it also should be something you are aware of what's going on and they want you to do something at home. Because I relate this to me going to the gym one hour a week isn't gonna do anything for my weight loss goals. <laughs> then if I go one hour at least every day of the week. So there's gotta be some follow through at home. So if they're saying, oh, we did this and we had fun, okay, see you next week. That's a red flag to me, okay? Not sure my child, but sees the world differently. Yes, all the news on my child. So the other thing, I'm glad that you said that you're talking about higher cognition. Kids with sensory processing disorders tend to fall high average to above average cognitively. And that's really important to understand. Now, so of course, we have kids with delays, but in general, they tend to be very, very smart kids. And in my mind, I always wonder, you know, which one came first? Were they always really super smart? So they took in parts of the world that the rest of us tend to not pay attention to. 
or was a, there a sensory processing disorder giving them all this information that also added to their cognitive strengths because they ha they were so much aware of everything in their world. Um, he constantly breaks things, not just toys. He takes and hides things. He hits his brother. He's five and indeed doesn't deal well with overstimulation. Yeah, so that to me was a lot of red flags of, of, of sensory processing problems. Of course, there could be, and that was a very small little information given to me, but I would, of course, say, you know, possibility of some autism there, but I would like to see if we got him diagnosed and started with some regulation, would he become more purposeful with his play? Could he regulate the amount of pressure he gives to toys so he's not breaking things and people? Um, could he, you know, really sit and play? I mean, I have a billing person that's worked for me for 16, 17 years. And I treated her daughter when she was a baby. And I treated her for about an hour. And the child sat down with me and we did something on the floor, I think a puzzle or something. And her mouth fell to the floor and said, I've never seen her sit in her life. So this child was so on the go that she didn't know how to play with toys. She didn't know how to, you know, get things together and be purposeful with them. She was just this whirlwind of activity. So that's why I like go to the bottom of my pyramid and say, well, if we could gain some regulation, what would we see from purposeful play and interaction with people? Would it be more age appropriate than maybe what you're seeing now? Okay. Does that make sense, Natalia? Did that help you? I can't see her, so I'm gonna assume that it gave her some answers. Okay, let's go back to our questions. Anxiety and sensory processing, I love that question. So how does anxiety relate to sensory processing disorder? Actually, the question read, do I see a play therapist or an OT? So when I started in on practice, I kind of did this, false front of I'm not treating anybody older than 12. <laughs> I don't know where 12 came from. I just had to make a rule. Well, my office in Wheat Ridge shares space with Jefferson Mental Health. And they started asking me questions about kids with anxiety and started in our little checklist of things, realizing that sensory processing disorder was huge in their teenage population and that either parents had no idea or it was diagnosed and never treated. So we started on a very limited basis saying, well, what would happen with these kids if they would come into therapy and they would be cooperative with treatment? And very interestingly, we see as much progress with those kids as we do our little kids. It's just getting them to be cooperative. And sometimes that's a no brainer and it works really well. And sometimes I can tell they're flipping me off at the door saying they're never coming back. Um, but so the anxiety piece for me, and I'm, I think this works with lots of our anxiety symptoms, but I especially think this is important for school age and younger kids with anxiety symptoms or complaints is that kids and adults with sensory processing disorders, one of the worst things they, they don't tolerate, that was a double negative, what they tolerate the least is anything unexpected. 
So their body doesn't know how to process that flip on of the blender and you're making them a smoothie in the, in the morning. Doesn't know how to process you coming up and tapping them on the shoulder. Doesn't like that unexpected. So put yourself in a world of unexpected. Does it feel calm and loving? No, it doesn't. It feels awful. I don't have to worry about 99% of the clothing in my, my closet feeling comfortable. It all feels good. I can wear a wool sweater. I can wear cotton. I can wear polyester. I can, you know, whatever. It all feels good. I don't leave my house with the concern in my mind that this dress is going to start bothering me today or that somebody might knock on the door right now and it's going to flip my lid. But that's how kids and adults with sensory processing problems go day to day to day to day. They are bothered by stimulation that they should that should be normal and not seen as excessive, not felt as weird or too much. So of course, we're going to feel very anxious when our whole world feels like it's bombarding you all the time. So I think once again, for school age kids, and I think that a majority of people that uh, uh, psychologists and counselors and social workers that understand a sensory processing disorder will say, go deal with that and tell me if you still need help with the anxiety piece. Because I think that typically you won't. Typically you won't need that psychiatric piece if we, if the, the, if the anxiety piece is what I think it is, which is tied into this dysregulation that the kid has felt really since birth, it might not have been as apparent for you at, at birth, but it certainly was there. It just didn't appear when they became four and five. Okay. Providers like you that recommend North Metro. We live in Northeast Thornton. You know, unfortunately, I'm really bad with the north side. In fact, that's why we opened our office in Wheat Ridge um, is because we were hearing from families all the time that no one knew where to send anybody on that kind of north. We get a lot of families from Northland, North, um, Thornton, um, the mountains, Conifer. I've got somebody coming down from Evergreen um, because I don't really have a great referral source of anybody. In fact, a lot of the referral sources from the South end of town were kind of my age people and they've all retired and left. Um, so I'm unfortunately don't have a great referral source for you on that more North side of town. I'm not very good at that. I'm so sorry about that. Um, what changes would parents make that would likely help their child, even those without sensory processing disorders? Um, I think kids, especially sensory kids, um, thrive on consistency, a routine, um, knowing how you're going to react and that your reaction is going to be consistent. Um, I think that kids in general tend to do better in classrooms where the expectations are very consistent, especially a sensory kid. Um, that consistency in that routine, a lot of parents are very surprised that their teacher doesn't see the same out of control behavior from their child that they do at home. Not really surprising to me. Um, there, it kind of splits both ways. So 
A lot of times the kids have more trouble at school. Typically that's because the stimulation is high, the consistency is low and the structure is low. Um, so a big, loud, noisy, I'm just making sure no one gets hurt classroom is not very good for a sensory kid. So in that environment, the teacher is gonna see the worst of this child, whether it's hiding under the desk and not wanting to play with anybody or fighting and pinching and running around throwing things. Um, but then I also get kids that are in environments that totally match their needs from a sensory perspective. So it's quieter, nice and structured, the, the teacher's calm. Those environments run really well. And if they walk into an environment, and a lot of home environments are not as structured as a, as a classroom environment, because you might only have two or three kids, not the 30 or 20 that is in a classroom. But so when they walk into that and they don't know what to expect, they don't know how you're going to react to them, they don't know what time their bedtime is or what time you might feed them, that's very hard for a child with a sensory processing disorder because they don't like unexpected. And you're thinking you're just being a nice, you know, kind of lackadaisical mom, which is fine for a lot of kids, but not for somebody on the autistic spectrum and not somebody with sensory processing disorders. It's really hard for them to, to, to stay grounded, to feel grounded in that environment. Um, if you're looking for something to help you with discipline, we love the book 123 Magic. Um, I like it because it's consistent. It gives the child the opportunity to not earn a timeout because you, I mean, it's really a 123 thing. It's very easy. But where it was helpful, so I ended up, so I've been doing this for 35 years. My oldest is 27, 28 today, excuse me. Um, I ended up with two kids with sensory processing disorders, one that was highly sensitive to the world and one that was a seeker and crasher. My seeker and crasher kid was also emotional dysregulation mess. Um, and at about eight or nine, she would come home from this perfect kid school and lose her mind for hours and hours and hours. And the more she went, the more I went. And then we were this just yelling, screaming, idiotic mess. Um, I instituted one, two, three magic in my home when she was eight. Um, it kept me calmer. So remember with a child with a sensory processing disorder, you can be a stimuli. So you yelling and screaming and overly explaining is topping out that cup. <laughs> And now it overflows and it's a mess. So the calmer you can be, and the first sentence in the book says, you know, 90% of what our children do wrong, they know they've done something wrong. They're really smart kids. They know they shouldn't have pinched their brother. So you don't need to pull them by the shirt and say, Joey, why are you pinching your brother? We don't pinch in this house. What are you doing? Look at all the words I just used. So now we just added to the cup of dysregulation. My kids used to tell me to shut up all the time, which I thought was so rude. But really what they were telling me is, mom, I can't manage your stimulation anymore. You're too much for me. Um, and so 
The one, two, three comes in when Joey pinches his brother, you say, well, and actually a pinch would have been an automatic timeout in my book because it's just aggression. But let's just say grabbing a toy. It would have been Joey, that's one. Joey knows exactly that he shouldn't have stole, stole Susie's toy. And he either gets it back or you wait three or four seconds and you say, that's two. And in his mind, he's going, hmm, am I going to give her back this toy? Or am I, when she gets to three, I know that every time she gets to three, she's going to march me to my timeout spot. Um, so it's simple. But they also stop at two and you give them a high five and say, good job of giving your toy back to Susie. So it also is a nice reward system. They earn a reward for doing what's really nice behavior. So in for my parenting strategy and a lot of our parents that, that take this on like it when they're very consistent with it. Now you can't do the one, two, three, time out. I mean, they get a chance to change their behavior. Um, and you can't do the one, two and a half, three, three and a half, three and three quarter thing. It's, it's consistent. Um, so that's something we like for discipline. I, I'm sure there's lots of other things, but in my findings through the years, and I, and frankly, I got trained in all this. I know this program very well. Love and logic doesn't work very well for a sensory child. I think it works very well for a regulated child because you're trying to reason with an unreasonable child. Their nervous system is at the peak of dysregulation. And so doing things because you logically think they can be logical doesn't fit for when we're treating them, which is in a dysregulated state. Holly, I think you had a question for me. Well, I was just gonna interject that um, the parenting style that I teach and that I coach is very much, um, there's no punishment at all okay. um, because okay. it, it comes from the standpoint that when kids are pinching or whatever their behavior is, it's coming from this unregulated place and they can't, they need to co-regulate. Um, going back, like my education goes back to like polyvagal theory, like they need that co-regulation in order to regulate. Mm -hmm. So it's really coming into it with, okay, let me help you regulate. And I completely understand that you're not gonna think logically until you are regulated. So we don't do any time, right. timeouts, we don't do any punishments. We do, um, we do work on ourselves so we can be this nurturing grounded harbor and keep our, our calm. And then holding that space for the child to re-regulate and come to that space where they can use their logical brain again. Perfect. So I get that. And I think that that's a beautiful, I, I think it's great. I really do. I think keeping a couple things in mind is that when you're co-regulating and you are providing stimulation, which when a child is, and pinching might not be, I mean, truly dysregulated, throwing things, cussing at you at the top of their thing, the more words you're giving them, the more you might be contributing to their dysregulation. So keeping that in the back of the mind that I think you can co-regulate a child without thinking that you have to do that through a lot of words. And a lot of kids can't really even tolerate a lot of touch at that time. 
Um, we see that a lot with kids that get hurt is that they go into that fight or flight response and we know that they would like some comfort, but they're screaming and they don't want you anywhere near them and they don't want a bandaid and they don't want you to say, oh, sweetie, they can't tolerate any of that. And so I tell my parents, be there, be close. I'm, I'm here when you want me. I'm here when you need a hug. I'm here if you need a Band-Aid. But doing it, which moms do bad, is jumping and trying to fix, you know, for a lot of those kids, that works great. But for some of these kids, they've gone into fight or flight because of that pain, and they can't tolerate you in the moment. So remember that, I think, Holly, when you're, when you're parenting a sensory kid from that knowledge base is to remember that you might be causing more overstimulation if you remember that you can be the stimuli. Does that still fit in with how you, you think you can keep that in your mind and still teach that way? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We teach um, that okay. the, the words are secondary and maybe helpful, Good. maybe harmful. They're not that mm -hmm. important. What's important is your presence and the energy of your mm -hmm. presence because it's the energy that will really that the kids pick up on. Absolutely. And I tell parents all the time, if you think you're hiding something from your children, you are sadly mistaken, especially a sensory kid that picks up on every little piece, you know, oh, we don't fight in front of our kids. Oh, they know that you're angry with one another. So yeah, I think that's very, very important is to, and I think that understanding that a lot of times that, um, you can be dysregulated too. And that might not be a time that you can co-regulate with your child if you're not in a regulated state. So a lot of parents, I mean, that was hard for me with her when she would blow gaskets that could last hours is to take a breath. It was okay for me to leave her. She was in a safe environment. Her dad was still here. She was in a place that, you know, her room or whatever. But sometimes me being there was more dysregulating factor than a regulating factor for her. Okay, let me see if I can, can get you a couple more before be we gotta go here. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time left, but um, it, the question that came up in the chat is very similar to a question I had on my sheet that I think that conversation leads straight into is <laughs> what can you give us some tips for parents that are highly sensitive and what do you recommend? Do you recommend that we go to OT? Do you recommend that we just do OT with our kids and we like practice with them or that we go to a, a different type of psychology? What do you recommend? You know, I've, have a, I've had a bunch of parents. I just met with one last week that recognized, I mean, he has an Asperger's diagnosis. He recognizes that he falls a lot in dysregulation and that he's having a hard time in his life. So I will do consulting with adults. But I think that if you could understand why your child's therapist is doing what they're doing therapeutically for their sensory processing disorder and apply it to yourself. So maybe you don't want to go down to the park and swing, but maybe you love to get on your bike. Maybe. So I had a dad years ago that said we were treating two of his children. And he said, Carrie, this is me. And I said, possibly. And he said, so what happened in October to me? <laughs> I don't know what happened in October. He said, you know, in October, things fell apart for me. He said, I've always been a long distance runner. I will run five to 10 miles a day. 
And they said, well, for you, that's like me taking a walk around the block because you've been doing it for a really, really, really long time. What did you change in October? He said, we gave up my gym membership. We couldn't afford it anymore. So he gave up the proprioceptive, the weights that were aiding in his regulation besides the running. And he noticed at that time that things had changed for him. He said he was having a harder time at work. He was short with his kids. And so for you, what heavy work works for you? What movement works for you? Is it a bike? Is it a run? Is it a swim? Is it weights? Is it, you know, whatever. But you have to find the time. You have to find, it might be you need it short bursts a couple times a day. It might need one big workout in the morning really lasts you most of the day. But applying those same principles that your therapist should be telling you about your child to your own sensory processing needs is super important for your own health, but of course your family's health. Um, so remember movement and heavy work are the two big ones that you we're gonna have to apply to both you and your children. It's just be more play-based for your kids and whatever based for you, it, you know, it can be a million things. You might figure out that you like to go rock climbing or you know whatever but you got to find that thing that really speaks to you and that you can do it on a regular basis and love anything else i know we're getting close to four i don't want to leave anybody with a question not answered I don't, i'm going to leave my paper here so please if you have one more thing you want me to go go over or anything that i said that doesn't make sense let me know um if nobody else is popping in with a question, if you could briefly just address like, you know, what if people are so afraid of healthcare costs that they're not getting help or um, for people of color that are uncomfortable, maybe these are similar answers, maybe these are different, but they're uncomfortable with the healthcare system for right. any given reason, you know, what, what can you share with us that might encourage people to get help? Well, I mean, I think number one, this doesn't go away on its own. So, you know, there has for these kids, their life can change. I mean, like little Michael, your life can change so immensely if you can get some regulation help. I think that from at least my practice is concerned, we take every insurance except two. We don't take Kaiser or Aetna. Um, but we also you should know before you enter a practice what your fees are going to be. My families know that the evaluation and the parent meeting and the written report is billed at this rate, but because I'm part of Cigna's plan, the most you will pay is this, but it could be as little as this. And I know that, and I know specifically that before you walk in the door. So I think that can take away some of that fear. I know for some of my families, you only get 20 visits if you want your insurance to pay for this um, or you get unlimited visits or you get 30 and then they double check my notes. Um, that's information that I love my biller for because she will find all that out before somebody steps in a door. So, um, but I also know that I know how to bill for a sensory processing disorder and not have it kicked back and say, oh, you're doing this. We don't really treat this. 
So that's another, I mean, I think, in fact, the, the dad that has Asperger's, he got really messed up in a practice in town who said that it would be covered. They billed it as a sensory processing disorder. He came back with a humongous bill. So I know that when I tell you something that your bill is going to be, you know, $220 and not $800, that I really mean that. Um, so I think that that can be helpful as having some peace of mind. And, and of course, it's always been important for me to treat the kids on Medicaid. It shouldn't matter how much money you or your family has. Your kids should all get the treatment once you kind of get to the right place. Um, and so it, it is something that I feel real strongly about keeping those Medicaid families because it is something that a lot of times these kids need that boost of things and these parents need some, some of this information in order to make this a less stress in their life because, you know, everything else can be very stressful. Does that help Holly at all? Yeah, it does. Um, and I think also with a sensory processing disorder in children, therapy itself is play-based. So they're not coming in and getting shots or giving medication or, you know, doing things that are harmful. It should be a lot of fun. Um, so I think that that can be helpful in families that are a little bit more cautious about what's going on is that, wow, you know, you come in and you play with my kid for an hour, you know, that certainly shouldn't be harmful. I haven't heard anybody yet. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You know, I just wanted to lift up something you mentioned in the beginning and, um, just the idea of letting the professional decide if there's any doubt in your mind, go get checked out, contact, um, would they contact, I mean, obviously you service our area. I may share this with people outside of our, you know, outside of Colorado even. Um, how any, I like suggestions as far as finding a, a provider? Well, typically your insurance will know who at least is an occupational therapist. Some of them will delineate whether it's a pediatric therapist or not. Some of them, and some of the plans, I'm just listed as an occupational therapist. Um, I think that there's a difference between true knowledge of the nervous system and a sensory processing disorder and what I call band-aid therapy. And what I mean by that is, and I don't, I don't mean this negatively, but I think that school OTs that treat sensory processing disorders tend to be more on the band-aid side of things because they're not allowed to treat it. And I don't mean that they don't have the knowledge. They're not allowed to treat a sensory processing disorder. They are put into a school to help with fine motor skills that go towards academics. So they will do things like your child chewing on a shirt all day, they'll give them a chewy necklace. If your child is um, you know, having a hard time sitting in his chair, they'll give them a chair cushion, which are all great things, but it's not treating the cause of a sensory processing disorder. It's trying to make them still enough so that they can sit in a classroom or try to make them so they're not chewing all the erasers off their pencils. So I think that's important too when, you, when you're calling people is to, you know, how many of the kids do you treat in your practice have a sensory processing disorder? What percentage? Um, you know, what percentage of your therapists have education in this specific area? Because it's very small when we go to school. Very, very, very small. Um, 
and so I think asking, I think, do they allow you in the session? Do they send you home with home program ideas of how to get your child to fall asleep easier? I mean, sleep should be number one on your list is that you can get your child to sleep and get a pretty good night's sleep without four or five times of wakefulness in the middle of the night. So yeah, I think that it can be hard to find a therapist. Um, I just actually talked to somebody in Denver that's helping come up with therapists and doctors and dentists and stuff and helping guide parents in whatever their kid needs, whether it's therapy or psychotherapy or medication or whatever. So because she found it really hard for her child to find all the therapists or, or her way through the Medicaid system when she was doing it when her son was diagnosed with autism. So it can be a very daunting process for sure. Mm, that is so helpful. Thank you. And how can people contact you if they are in this area and they want to find out more? Thank you. So the easiest way is to get on our website, S is in Sam, P is in Paul, the number four kids, K-I-D-S dot com. There's actually a start button on our front page and it takes you to a one page little paperwork that goes directly to my office manager where she sends it to our biller to check your insurance. And then the first step in my practice is an, a half hour to 45 minute telephone conversation. What are your concerns? Who referred you? Um, you know, then I'll have a lot of questions. Um, and are you in the right place? Because a lot of times I'll go, ooh, I think this is a language processing problem, not a speech or not an OT problem. So I wanna make sure that we're not just throwing you into an evaluation before we make sure that number one, are we comfortable with each other? But number two, how much is this going to cost you? And um, are we on the right page? Okay. That's fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me come today. I really appreciate it. If you have any questions, you can always email me. Holly has my email. I definitely can answer any questions on this side. I don't mind doing that at all. Um, or if you, there, my website also has a lot of good little um, connections too with different paperwork and stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Carrie. It, this has been so eye-opening and you know, how yeah. many problems can we solve by having some appointments with an OT and instead of fighting ourselves constantly, you know, thinking that we're doing something wrong or trying another parenting right. method or whatever, like this has been so illuminating as to what, when to go, who to, you know, who to talk to and, and kind of what to keep in mind. So thank you for being here, for sharing your experience and expertise. It is so, so wonderful. Thank you very much. You guys have a great weekend. Bye.